you know, there's a big event happening within the next, you know, week or so. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I think that uh, it's only fitting that this is the lo- sort of the last episode before it happens. That, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. That we take some time to acknowledge uh, the day and to Aww. celebrate it. Yeah. yeah, okay, uh, you guys don't have to do this. Yeah, yeah. So no, I need we want to. Yeah, no, we really we want, want to. to. We, want we really to. want to. So okay. I, need you, I, I need you both to wish me a happy St. Patrick's Day. Wait, what? <laughs> well, I, what? Yeah. Wish you a happy... Look, the 17th came and the 17th went, and I didn't get a single text from either of Wait, you. Wait, hold on, you just you said celebrating in the next week. <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the next week. Yeah. We... Something is happening in the next week, AJ. Yes. It's you wishing me happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> That's what we're commemorating is the time that you asked us to wish you a happy St. Patrick's Day from last week. Right. Because you're Irish. Yes, because once you wish me a happy St. Patrick's Day, I as an Irishman have no choice but to read to you the entirety of Finnegan's Wake. Oh. AJ, hmm. it's literally my birthday. So Welcome to the worst of all possible worlds, the first and only podcast where even though it's one of the host's birthdays, fucking mix are more important. <laughs> I'm the worst of all possible Josh's. I'm, I'm the, the I, I, <laughs> I, 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 am the, I am the worst of all possible Brian's. I'm the worst of all possible AJ's and I've never gone last before. Yeah, I don't AJ know what to do now. always comes first. Always, <laughs> always. That's true. River Run past even Adams from Swerve of Shore to Bend of Bay brings us by commodious vicus of recirculation back to Howth Castle and Environs because this week we're covering Sunday in the Park with George. Sunday yeah, in the Park with George. Covering something that has absolutely nothing to do with Finnegan's Wake yeah. or the Irish. Yeah. Famously, a, an American Are you musical. telling me that Mandy Patinkin isn't Irish? Yeah, I'm telling you that. Oh. This is the musical that won Stephen Sondheim the Pulitzer Prize. You're already asleep. I understand. Someone, <laughs> someone wants to refer so most of the audience. to the concept of this show is so boring you fall asleep halfway through the title. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the the crew backstage uh, on Broadway when it was in previews would refer to it as snoring in the park with George. Oh, uh, I heard another one, too. They oh. called it Sunday in the Dark with Bored. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's him. much better. reason they're not the ones winning the Pulitzer here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. This musical is incredibly divisive even I think amongst the musical theater community like there are many people whose opinions I respect very much when it comes to musicals who think that this show just doesn't work or that it has a perfect first act and an incredibly problematic second act yeah I don't agree with that opinion but I can I can see where they're coming from I think yeah I mean the most shows don't have a structure like this the two Mm. acts are completely separate from each other Um, And they used to be even more separate from each other. It used to be a show just where other things happen in the second Mm. act. Yeah, it becomes uh, more jazz. This musical, for those of you who don't know, is a musical based on the painting A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. You have seen it before. Google it right now. I went to the Art Institute in Chicago, and I've actually seen this thing in person. It's fucking incredible. It's unreal. When I first moved to New York, I I made a point of... spending a day in Chicago and going to the art Institute and seeing the painting. Yeah. Um, if you go to the Met and I believe that there's also one at the MoMA, you can see some of the test paintings that he did Mm. that are like, they're not even small. They're normal painting size. They are, they're very respectably sized paintings, 
and all of them were still tests for this. What you don't realize, because you see this thing printed and reproduced so much, it is yeah. huge. It's Massive. enormous. It's, it's an the entire size wall. of a room. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, a yeah. mural. No, it's like it's like Guernica. It's just yeah. like fucking. Yeah, and you're in a room with it, and it's the only thing in the room, yes. and it just draws you in. You like it's you're sucked into the world of this painting. I bounced off hard when yeah. I watched this the yeah. first time. The second act, especially, I had no idea what to do with. I thought the first act, like there was something that was very mercurial and like mysterious about it, but it. Yeah. it I think on a first watch of it, it it feels very inaccessible mm-hmm. in a way that more and more repeat viewings and listenings, it reveals itself over time. Almost yeah. like when you're looking at a George Seurat painting. Yeah. Yeah. You get up close and all you see is the dots, but then you take a few steps back and you start to see the bigger well, picture. And that's the yeah. thing is like, because that painting is featured so much in like textbooks and things like that. I remember seeing it in so many yeah. concerts or on TV or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I didn't know it was a pointillistic painting. You know, because oh, I was right. always seeing this gigantic thing down to like stamp sized in a little book somewhere. Yeah, and oh, then of it course. Just, it, unless you see it in person the way that it yeah. was intended, it, you cannot understand what this painting is unless yeah. you've seen it in that way. Yeah. yeah. Whereas there's plenty of other art like, you know, the fucking you can see a print of the Mona Lisa in eight and a half by 11. It and won't, you get it. You know what's you, going you on. Get yeah. Yeah, you yeah, get yeah, it. You get what the deal is. It's also the Mona Lisa is not much bigger That's than eight what I'm and a half by 11. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And like yeah. this. Yeah, the dots are so small that if you are seeing just a small recreation of it, either through a pho- photographic process or you're looking right. through a pixelated screen or anything like that, yeah. you're not going to see the dots. Because that's how printing works. Yeah. That's how yeah. that's how standard inkjet printers yeah. work. It's a bunch of teeny tiny little dots. And, and also for yeah. the art historians out there, we know they're not dots. They are little they're, tiny brush strokes. They're blobs. They're little blobs. Yeah. But for the sake of argument, just because the show itself refers to them as dots, there's a character named Dot. We will yeah. be referring to them as dots. And but just know. And for the, art, for the art people, too, we're not going to talk much about George Surratt because there's not much to say. Right? Yeah. We're not even sure what he died of. Yeah. When he died of at the age of 31 of some disease that his son also died of a few months later. Yeah. Or a few uh, two weeks later. I'm sorry. People say meningitis, but like it's so incredible. Yeah. I mean, other people that, said syphilis. 1890 so it's like, was also when an influenza outbreak was happening, which sure. some scientists are now saying may have been a coronavirus uh, at the time. Oh, and whoa. like, yeah. Oh, well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you tell me a coronavirus wrote this novel? You're telling me a love time to this cholera? <laughs> So so this show is a challenge yeah. and I, not just to perform because it certainly is that I think yeah. there are a lot of different characters. It's two completely different timelines that you have to jump back, you know, jump back and forth between it. The music is, uh, let's say, complicated, uh, yeah. but it is a challenge in a much greater way, yeah. which I will return to when we kind of wrap up our talk about this. But, you know, this is it's a musical that has confounded a lot of people and has turned a lot of people off because they find it to be pretentious which is a thing that i kind of want to challenge a bit demystify it a little bit yeah all right you're gonna go ahead and challenge me because i made the note this thing is pretentious numerous times yeah so yeah well um i don't like the word pretentious for the most part and it's mostly because it's been leveled at me so many times (laughs) but i I think really Oh, yeah. The guy who read Finnegan's Wake three minutes ago? Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I think pretension is is a thing that does exist. But I often think that it's a thing that's sort of thrown to like delegitimize things because people don't necessarily understand it and they Mm want to cast it off as pretentious. But for me, pretentious is being uh, like presenting yourself as this very the the smart version of holier than thou Mm. right but not 
offering any sort of emotional through line or way in it's mm-hmm. sort of i know things i know more things than you look at all these things i know aren't i a smart person whereas sunday and other works that get like pretentious thrown at them i think has a really great emotional through line that mm-hmm. if you're willing to buy into it this i think is probably one of sondheim's most emotionally unabashed shows yeah in a way that first viewing you're like completely discombobulated by but at a certain point you once you click into it man dear god this show will rock you by so, the way this is all on youtube this is the most fucking public television ass thing you will ever see in your <laughs> life <laughs> right like holy shit the, of course it was on pbs pbs great yeah. performances ass show like, yeah. like this is built for pbs the synthesizers everything is up in the treble range mm-hmm. i mean yeah. it feels like you're watching like an episode of wishbone the the orchestrations i should point out these are by michael starabin not the usual guy who did orchestrations for sondheim that's right that was usually Jonathan Tunick. Yeah. And Starabin is playing a lot with synthesizers, which yes. maybe you liked, Josh. Did you what did you think about it? Uh <laughs> let's get into it when okay. we get to the different songs i, I don't sure. like the synthesizers. i have mixed yeah. thoughts about the synthesizers okay. what was weird he this you know he was basically a kid when he came on to do the orchestrations for this like he mm. when, when lapine brought him on uh tunic just could, had to do a different show and he was like well my protege yeah. can take over and his protege was like what if i just really fuck with this shit yeah and then like yeah. tried his own thing with it which i respect but i agree with you future i find that every single cast recording sort of does something different and focuses on one instrument over the other ones. So in the original one, it's synthesizers. Uh, In the London cast, it's uh, It's saxophone. It's saxophone and violin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then in the 2017 one, it's clarinet. Like, they just went all in on clarinets and oboes. But I think part of the thing about the synthesizers, too, is, you know... it really was a time like fucking Phantom of the Opera uh-huh. because of right. Phantom of the Opera. Synths were defining the sound yeah. of Broadway at that and time. And this even this even beat Phantom of the Opera to the theaters. Oh, and, did it really? And oh, yeah, the revival, years, yeah. the revival of Sweeney Todd at Circle in the Square, because we're also getting uh, shows with smaller and smaller budgets. Right. right. We're getting rid of our instrumentalists. Yeah. And so they they that that first revival of Sweeney Todd in the eighties with Bob Gunton, I think. Yeah. That was called Teeny Todd and it was just all like it was like yeah. four synths. You know, this is before Wicked. Sure. Uh, oh yeah, wait, 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 was that what it was actually called? I thought just that was the Forbidden Broadway. No, oh, that was that Todd. was the thing that people were calling it, which is why Forbidden Broadway. The demon barber that's teeny. Yeah, <laughs> and so um, what this show opens with is a blank stage in the most extreme sense that you could have one. Right? right. It is just white, and you have these um, teasers and tormentors on the top and the sides of the stage. They mm-hmm. are white. The floor is white, and there is light underneath it, so it's kind of glowing. Yeah. And you have Mandy Patinkin in a beard as George Seurat, who we will, we will just be calling George because that's what his name is in this show. Yes. And there will be confusion that ensues. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, Wait and- a minute. Sunday in the park with... I was expecting to spend Sunday in the park with George, not Sunday in a white box with George. Oh, What's going on that's here? That's a good question, Josh. <laughs> because here's the thing about that white stage, mm. about mm. that blankness. Mm. Yeah, I'll let George, who I just said I was just going to call George from now on, <laughs> yeah. uh, explain it. White. A blank page or canvas? The challenge, bring order to the whole. 
design, composition, tension, balance, light, and harmony. So as this AJ's, music AJ's starts, AJ's already to play, holding back tears. Uh, I just want to point that out. Yeah. This fucking show. <laughs> as this music plays, all of the white starts to disappear. It's so cool. Everything yeah. rises out. I don't even know how the floor effect works exactly. It's. Yeah. I don't well, quite get it. There are so um, many tricks in this stage yeah. that are so fucking cool. James Lapine. It should be noted, the, the librettist of this, he's not just a writer, he is also a director. And the director of this? Seems incredibly dangerous. Yes! Uh, and impossible to do, but he is just such a self-driven person. I mean, this yes. is a guy who went from, who was working at Yale, not in their faculty, no. not in their drama department. No. He was their graphic designer. Oh, wow. And yeah. then was like, hey, could I direct a show here? And they were like... Okay, Sarah Kernachan's husband. Remember when you could just do that? Yeah. Yeah. Remember? I mean, I don't. That was before my time. And they said, it's like, well, we liked your poster, so sure. It's <laughs> insane. It always feels like every... You read the stories about all these people got into theater in the 60s and 70s, and it's almost like they magooed their way in. Oh, yeah. They tripped over, like, nine other people just yep. to, well, like, land these gigs. I've been reading this roundtable in the Dramatist magazine that, that you, you lent me, AJ. Yeah. Where Lin-Manuel Miranda asks John Weidman how he got his first show produced with Stephen Sondheim, of all people, out of nowhere. And John yeah. Weidman was like, well, I was I was in law school and I didn't want to keep going to law school. And they're like, yeah, but how how did you know Harold Prince, the top Broadway yeah, producer right, right. of like all time? Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, well, my dad wrote the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning musical Fiorello with him. <laughs> right. <laughs> I should have mentioned that. I, yeah. But, but to pull it back Nepo to baby John yeah. Weedman, what's yeah. happening here with this staging? Mm -hmm. Yes. There's something so incredible about how you had a completely white space that now yeah. all of a sudden is composed of color and space and texture. And as George is saying these words, the stage comes alive in different ways. And, and yeah. it comes alive. And I love that this happened in the 80s because now everyone's going to play with and, and does play with projections right. as they're doing this and more power to them because they've done some beautiful things. Yeah. 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 Um, but this is before the point where that's really viable. There are some projections in act two and they're pretty boring. Right. Um, right. Here you have, it's all physical. Yeah. It's James Lapine playing with all of his little toys. He has his little walkways. He has his slots in the floor mm -hmm. that flat objects rise and fall out of. He has like holes in the back wall. He has yeah. just lots of flown in objects. Lots there are of trees, drops, yeah. trees yeah. that go down and up, some that go side to side. The whole thing is just constantly like pulsating and changing. And the, yeah. the way that this movement is integrated with the actual script, you know, at one point, George is like, I hate this tree. And it flies and back it up. It flies again. out. Yeah. And you think that's the end of the bit. It, right, yes. <laughs> because it's just like, oh, that's a fun staging thing. But then another character comes out on stage and goes, "Nurse, where is the tree?" Right, right, <laughs> it's, right. it's this senile old woman, and so you have both sort of the reality of her being senile and thinking a tree was there when it wasn't. But also, we are living inside of this painting. Yes. It should be said too, right in front of the front curtain, yes. uh, and there are multiple curtains. Every time it comes up and down, it's like a different thing. Right, uh, is this very very small lip? It's like four feet deep. Yeah, and. There, you'll see George sometimes there. It'll sometimes be like the idea of it being in his studio and the right. rest of the stage is in his painting. Yes. Um, James Lapine loves 
Loves to block things on his lips. He sure does. In, into the Woods has that entire 15-minute opening sequence all on the lip. And yep. they've, they've built out also a hardwood deck yes. on top of this lip. Yeah. So the nice thing is, too, everything that is upstage of that deck is very clearly like in the space and in the painting yeah, and stuff outdoors. like that. it's outdoors. It's in the park. Whereas yes. if you're downstage and you're on that lip, you're very much in the real physical world. And that's a yeah. very, from a directorial perspective, a very cool little staging trick that helps you understand intuitively and quickly what the rules of the world are. And yeah. very importantly, there are only two actors in the first act that go out onto the lip. It mm -hmm. is George, played by Mandy Patinkin, as we said before, and uh, Dot, who is played by Bernadette Peters, who gives us our opening number, mm -hmm. which is called Sunday in the Park with George. And before we get right to Sunday in the Park with George, I just want to rewind and play these opening chords again. Mm. Yes. And I want you to think about like the way chords can be played, the way arpeggios can be played, right, where you can run sure up a chord or down a chord yeah. and then realize how does Sondheim run these chords at the beginning. Just listen to it again. White, a blank page or canvas. The he doesn't go up or down. Bring order he starts at one point, takes another note from the chord, takes another note from the chord, but it's all Almost as though it's at random, but there is a melodic structure there. Well, and they all end at the same note, yeah. too. Yeah. And this is him trying to synthesize this idea of pointillism. Mm. Right. Uh, he talks about one of his ideas was they learned how Surratt painted, and he didn't tend to mix colors with anything besides the color next to them. And right. he had 11 colors in white, 12 tones. Sondheim worked with Milton Babbitt when he was younger. He studied under Milton Babbitt in just like a fellowship that he paid for with his TV writing money because of the brief period he wrote for TV shows in the 50s. Yeah. And uh, let me just play for a second what Milton Babbitt sounds like so you get a good sense of who he was learning under. This is the music skeletons would play. Yes. <laughs> the bones are their money. Yeah. <laughs> this is a I don't understand it myself, right? Like this this very tonic this very this is also called uh, like serial music. Sorry, I'm just I'm just yeah. remembering that one time I was in a fucking Rite Aid and I and, and they were playing this. I'm not even joking. I don't know if it was this exact piece or something oh, like it, I love but it was this Rite weird atonal piano music and I was like, "What the fuck?" When when you got to the cash register, was it just was it just a skeleton in a Rite Aid vest? Yeah, yeah, I handed over and, some bones. Yeah, and, he was and like, the thing is like this music has like if you are someone who's deep into like music theory, this makes sense. Like right. there is a logic yeah. that exists to this that does not hit just sort of a, a regular layman's ear. I think some of the stuff that he writes a little bit later can be more accessible. He got really into synths um, at the beginning, like at the same time as Wendy Carlos. Mm. The, um, Babbitt actually got a deal with RCA Victor to work with the prototypes for their first synthesizer. Oh, wow. Oh, shit. Um, so, Josh, you might want to look up his electronic stuff. I just might. But uh, I doubt he's as good as Wendy Carlos, but no. who is? Um, you get that electronic shit you played at your nearest Rite Aid. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, Sondheim is not writing this, though, right? Right. Um, so he, he talked to Milton Babbitt about uh, when when he was studying with him, he was like, oh, I want to write atonal music like you. And Babbitt's like, well, you can once you have run out of melodies. And Sondheim said he never ran out of melodies. Right. So he never no, got to that point where he exhausted all the possibilities and had to go into this further abstract 
realm. One of the things that he tried to do when he was doing that idea with the palette, where he would just do chords that mixed notes that were right next to each other. Yeah. Doesn't sound great, and it doesn't sing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sondheim, he said he, he, said he yeah. stopped that pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Sondheim learned in his earlier scores, if you tried to do an experiment where you were carrying a musical idea through, that works for a symphony, because the symphony doesn't stop. Sure, right, right, That right. thing starts, and you're going through. But then you have dialogue. You're back into a form of reality that then you've, you're breaking it again to get back into that original musical idea. Sure. But this opening number, the Sunday in the Park with George, which is the number that Dot sings does a really interesting job of finding a motif that it does carry through the number. Yeah. 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 And then the show and and listen to uh, I've taken apart from the middle of the show here. Mm. Listen to what the piano is doing underneath it. Listen to what the orchestration is doing, because you're going to hear a little bit of that Milton Babbitt there. Artists are bizarre, fixed, cold. That's you, George, you're this. It's very spiky, you know. Mm -hmm. Big breath burn that. Yeah. <laughs> there are Jeez. Things are staring at the water. I should pose for a picture being painted by your lover in the middle of a summer on an island in the river on a side. How do you do that? I, I and don't it's know. not even the longest one. The no, longer no, one is later. Know, <laughs> The way you do that is uh, outstanding breath control, but the thing I love about Barnett's performance in this is just how exasperated her voice gets. Yes. Yes. Like that she allows the emotion of it to like enter into her voice in a way that most, a lot of modern musical theater, I feel it's all about keeping the tone pure and perfect. But what's so impressive too is that she does that without losing precision. She's so dialed in technically. The melody is always, I mean, this is something that is very unique to Bernadette Peters. Mm -hmm. And when they filmed this show, that was at the end of the run. She was gone. Mandy was gone. Right. I think Brent Spiner was gone. You know, like they brought back original cast members and especially Bernadette Peters. Yeah. Uh, because how could you not? Right. How yeah. could you not put this on your your posterity version of the show? Right. It, it is so distinctly written for her and the peculiarities of her voice and the absolute miracles that she performs as an actor throughout this first act. So Hey there, you are listening to a preview of a premium episode of The Worst of All Possible Worlds. If you'd like to listen to the rest of this, head on over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash worst of all. And you can listen to not only the rest of this episode, but our entire backlog of premium episodes, bonus episodes. And if you subscribe at the $10 tier, you will get an extra episode of the podcast every single month. Again, that is patreon.com slash worst of all. Hope to see you there.